0: You're listening to Irish Radio Candidate at Home and Abroad, and I'm delighted to have an opportunity to sit down and have a chat and meet Bill German, and he is Irish-born, West Cork, and I know there's tremendous power, heritage, culture, and everything down West Cork. Bill has written a book, Only Dead Fish Swim With the Current, and it's a memoir filled with wit and candour, exploring everything from boyhood. In Ireland to an adulthood overseas I'm delighted It's, it's a real pleasure And uh, in some of what I read And I read an article that you wrote In the Globe and Mail I was smiling as I was reading it Because I could relate so well To so much of it Thanks
1: for having me
0: Let's go way back down to West Cork
1: Yeah. Well mm. I, I start the memoir uh, We are very tribal Down there I'm very proud of our heritage and I started the book by referring, say, a hundred years previously to the famine when the Bishop of Cork came down to survey Skibbereen and Skull, where they were horrifically hurt by the famine. And he was meant to go on to Crookhaven, which is west of Skull, And the uh, story goes that he rode his horse up to the top of the hill the west side of Skull, raised his hand and said, Bless all who live west of here. And he buggered back to Cork. So that's where I come from. Bless all who live west of here. And as I say, I've always felt blessed. A townland called Tourmore, which is about um, six miles west of Skull and about 10 miles short of the Mizzenhead.
0: Bill, when you were going to school, I imagine it was, was it a one, two or three room school? One
1: room. Were there many in the school? There were about, maybe I would say 12 at most. The, the fact that we were Protestant and had much smaller numbers than our Catholic neighbors. That would account for, I think, most of the Catholic schools would be at least two-room. But the, the nice thing about it is, of course, that we all mixed together. The older ones helped the younger ones. We had one young girl who was, um, I suspect, partly Mongolite, maybe, and she was deaf, so... The teacher taught us at that time the two-handed deaf and dumb language, which I can still do. You know, we included her in in our games, so it was inclusive as well as having the older ones helping the younger ones. It was nice.
0: When you say then that you were 12, so that the Catholic school would have had a bigger population, were you conscious of there being a difference?
1: And it's funny you should say that because it comes up with me all the time. Huge amount of people in Ireland think that all Protestants are wealthy. They're not aware of the guys at the margins, <laughs> like Wester Scull. <laughs> but we were um, we were conscious, I guess, that there was a difference. Not quite sure why, but there was no animosity, and we played with our Catholic friends in our local townland. Also, I think the the meher was in perfect operation at that time, you know, the the group of stuff. So I described, for example, the threshing or the thrashing where everybody had to come to work and everybody else's thing. saying, you know, that made it very difficult to have any. So you go to a different place for church on Sunday. In the case of the Protestants, I refer to my father being and some of the other unconvinced. They'd be down at the back. It wasn't as if they were totally on their knees.
0: So where would church have been, given that you were that out there in the wilds of West Cork?
1: Well, it, it was very big, particularly from my mother. And she played the organ in the local church for uh, nearly 60 years or whatever. Uh, but it's an interesting church historically, in that it's the only one in Ireland that I know of with an Irish name, Temple because it was built in the famine by this charismatic cleric and the guys who built it were called Supers as their recompense. There was dispute as to how much he proselytized as distinct from just giving them the soup. But it's a lovely, austere little church with no plaques on the wall except one to this guy. And a small plaque to four guys who died in the First World War. It's as if nothing between the famine and the First World War and then again now was important enough to put a plaque up about, you know. It, our, our family grave was just outside the door on the right-hand side. And as I said at the time, that whilst I might know where I was going, I knew where I would end up, you know. That particular church, it must have been a small church. When
0: you would have got to the end of national school. That would have been a critical time because where do you go from here? Would It must have been a question. Or
1: Yeah, I mean, that was a turning point for me. I think where I said, there's not no going back if you start that route because I was sent off to Middleton, which is, you know, of Cork to a boarding school. And the whole kind of culture was a, a shock to me. And as I think I said, I used to cry several times before I left home to go there. Now, I eventually got socialized, into, the, which, which means in effect that, that I got socialized out of my West Cork thing. And I mean, I enjoyed it by the time I was finishing. Uh, it's just at the time I was kind of annoyed that there was no Protestant schools nearby or what was the need for the separate schools anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I then used to ask those kind of impossible questions. Questions, you know. Mm-hmm. At the moment, as
0: I listen to you, I'm not picking up the lilt of the strong West Cork accent. Mm-hmm. So when you arrived into Middleton, had you to learn to modify your pronunciations and your enunciations?
1: I did, I think, to some extent, but I was never very successful in doing it completely. And I remember, for example, the, the young guys from Douglas. You know, whose fathers would be in the bank or whatever, they wore lovely little gray short pants. And we had long cord drawers down to the knee. And we had dip pens, uh, not because we were poor in that sense, but the teacher didn't want us destroying our handwriting by using virals and stuff. So there was a lot of stuff that so we were open to being mocked. And when you're 10 year old or whatever, at least I was quite sensitive, you know.
0: Mhm, mhm. That would have been a time as well, because you know I had boarding school experience. That was a time when you went in in September and you didn't come home till Christmas. Yes. And you were back in January and you didn't come home till Easter. And it's, then you were gone again till the end of the year. And I would take it that you did not get too many family visits during the term.
1: It, it was like in the Father Ted program where they talked about going to Southern Yemen, like. From <laughs> we we were the equivalent of southern Yemen, and they'd have things like Boys' Sunday where local you could go out, and we were at the kind of mercy of nice families who would take us out as well. We never got home. So
0: tell me then, were you? Did you have a tuck box, and did you get the supplies sent to you from home?
1: Yeah, we had a tuck box which we used to bring full. I don't remember how it was replenished. I think it was probably meant to last um, for the term, you know. <laughs> there, was, that was, there, was also, there was a tuck shop there where you could yeah. buy certain things, you know.
0: After, after secondary school then, what ambitions would you say you developed in school that, um, where, to go, where to go from here?
1: I was in, I guess, a small group who was judged to be able to go to university if we could fund it. And I had been concentrating on the sciences and maths and stuff like that. So somewhere engineering was the, uh, the title, electronic engineering, because that was even more difficult. So, uh, yeah, I used to enjoy playing around with crystal sets and radios. I wasn't long in university when I realized that it had F all to do with crystal radios. <laughs> and so I was misplaced but i but I weathered on. that's another story
0: again, very different when you think the transition from what would have been a very isolated part of Ireland, a gradual transition to Middleton and from middleton into to university. Where did you see yourself going or or from an ambition perspective or where where did you see your future
1: as as best I remember, I never really had much of an idea where I was going I I had no kind of passion to be a doctor or a lawyer that kind of single professional thing so where I used to see I was going was to pass the next exams and keep my mother happy which is why when I reached 21 and came out I was kind of revolving then because I I had to start figuring out for myself what I was going to do. Right.
0: And where would you go from there?
1: I just want to think of it before I forget it. Yeah. A fun story about in university where one of my best mates I was best man for him afterwards. He was from Kerry um, and the Catholic bishop was writing to him demanding either that he doesn't go or that certain certain things would be done. And Jim didn't give a damn, but his father was caught in between trying to come up with, with a piece. And so eventually a letter came from the bishop, and I have a copy of it somewhere, where he more or less said, okay, it looks like you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. Here's a list of things that are important. and want to go to Mass every day. Don't be mixing too much with Protestants. <laughs> And and I was lucky to the extent that <laughs> most of my friends were Catholic and they all had come through that John Charles kind of filter. Yeah. And so, therefore, they had a, a certain independent mind, you know. <laughs> Bill, we'll take a short break. Yeah, piece of music. An old song we used to sing, an old guy in the cave used to sing, called Miss Gildhury's Party. You are listening to Irish Radio,
0: return with Bill German. And this is... Uh... Miss Gilhooley's party. We'll be back with you in a moment.
2: Mrs. Gilhooley, she gave a grand party one night. She invited us all to attend. So we gathered a gang and went round to the house, a few pleasant hours to spend. There was Trina and all a few more than myself, a more impudent crowd hard to find. But the thing most important we almost forgot, we near left the old piper behind. We invited him down to the party. He brought his bagpipes to by chance. We asked him to sing and he said, eh, no, but I play as if you do a dance. So he picked up the pipes and he started to play till someone got fooling about. And they cut a the big hole in the bag of his pipes. And this is the tune that came out the the Well, when the piper found out that his bag had been cut, well he made a great leap on the floor, and his kit all got working in fast hammer style, and he landed them under the jar. Well, Mrs Gilhooly, she fainted, and they all made a rush trying to get out of the door. But the piper had nine of them taken to the count, and he swore he would lick twenty more. We invited him down to the party. He brought his bagpipes as be chance. We asked him to sing, and he says, "I no, but I play as if it were dance. So he picked up the pipes and he started to play till someone got fooling about. And they caught a big hole in the bag of his pipes, and this is the tune that came out. So, if ever you go to a party, be sure to keep this in your mind. Don't fool about with the piper, and you'll find he's a gentleman kind. But if trouble should start, keep out of his way, for he carries this awful pal talk. You won't feel it coming, but whew, when it lands, you'll find he's an Irish cataw. We invited him down to the party, he brought his bagpipes as we chance. We asked him to sing, and he says, Please, I might. I might. <laughs> ah, no, no, no. I play. It's a bit of a dance. So he picked up the pipes and he started to play till someone got a about. And I cut a big hole in the bag of his pipes, and this is the tune that came out the Bill what's coming out loud and clear is
0: you've a you have a a l love of fun. You have a, a, an enjoyment, you have a sense of humour, you have a passion for joy. And that's so important, because there's so many people don't. You, after you uh, graduated, you, you did a fair bit of travelling. You've been around the world.
1: Yes, and I was, I guess, in my mid-twenties, and there was very few Irish people at the time, that age, who had the opportunity to travel to a number of Middle East and African countries. Uh, I was and I was doing it for work. I was working in an area where we were promoting the export of services as distinct from products. You right. know, so like consulting engineers, architects, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I went to Zambia, Tanzania, Malawi, Kenya, Sudan, Nigeria. Those are the African ones, and Libya which doesn't count really as, a, as an African country.
0: And that was uh, as part of what was a semi-state body that eventually evolved into being Enterprise Ireland. Is that, what that, exactly. yeah, yeah. The only other way you got to see those countries was to join the missions.
1: I have actually a, a, <laughs> a story, one of the stories in the book, not about the particular African countries, but I got to know quite a few priests Out in my travels. And these would be guys, you know, who probably went to Maynooth and at 21 or something were pitched into the, pitched into the wild and figured out themselves. So as a result, they were usually great characters. I got to thinking this way, and some of them were coming on retirement, Holy Ghost Fathers back to Black Rock. Right. They, they didn't want to be going home because they were now settled where they were. They were going to go back into bureaucracy and all kinds of stuff. They didn't want it. And I got to thinking that, do you remember when when you were growing up as well, I guess, we had a, a charity box on every counter with pennies for the black babies, which of course that phraseology couldn't be used now. Nope. But if you think about it, when slowly Ireland became heretical like the Catholics stopped going, the guys from Africa were coming home, but they had taught guys whose sons were priests, and they came back to fill the gap in Ireland. So the 22 black babies helped (coughs) trim these heretics, who then in turn came back and ministered to the heathen. And so my comment there was, What a great investment with the pennies for the black babies.
2: But
0: that was leading edge to be promoting services rather than product. And of course, at that time, Ireland was this would have been before Ireland became the hub for the high tech sectors. So they really the only exports other than some farming which products which were very small would have been services
1: No, it was, I was the first person involved in this section we set up in the trade board, uh, you know, to promote services. And so it was pioneering time and we just joined the EU or the EC as it's called. And they gave aid to these countries and a certain percentage of it was meant to be done. I mean, tied aid because a certain percentage was done for each country. So I was. Hunting up some on the back of that. And I mean, at another level, I used to hate it at times because I'd often be on my own for weeks and end. I remember in Khartoum sending it one pint because it was something like eight pounds. I couldn't afford to be drinking anymore. And they, I, of course, I got a perspective up front on colonialism because as I described that period, it was the, the the embers of the empire, because Britain had pulled out, but the um, the consequences were still there, right. and i found that very interesting, and actually probably changed my worldview in a way that I've been a bit of an outsider ever since. Backtracking a second, if I may. Yeah. The, um, my first job in Dublin after university was with the PNT. Uh, telephone department and it was very very sluggish at the time but I remember going in on my very first day my 21st birthday and this guy who I became friendly with later he took me aside to tell me a few things and he pulled from his pocket a sheaf of papers that he had been at a course in the Shelburne Hotel the previous night. Dale Carnegie, I think it was. He starts reading out all the kind of things that you need, you know, like ambition, drive. And then he looks up over the top and he says, you need none of that here.
0: <laughs> After the, uh, what would have been your African postings, where'd you go from there?
1: I went to New York. So that was 1978. Okay. Um, um, I was put on the food and drink desk, uh, which I knew nothing about, of course. It was exciting. There was one supermarket guy I was making a presentation to. We we're trying to have a, we we're trying to have, um, St. Patrick's Day promotion uh-huh. and he had all the products out on the table, which of course a good salesman would tell you, you don't do. And they were pretty tired products, you know, like gato cakes and tin and stuff like that. So the guy he was quite friendly because he was he was Irish American. He claimed his grandmother was from Cork. I didn't hold it against him. But um, he says, Okay, it's time was up. He says, get this shit out. So I went back out to the door and he says, Come back and take this shit. So I'm back taking the products and pulling them into a a briefcase I had at the side of the desk and a jar of layered jam fell and broke and I was I remember with my, my fingers going through red jam into the briefcase with the glass. That's an experience that uh, that I won't forget. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: root of your career kinda of here you you're you're out promoting what would have been consulting services in Africa, you come over to the US and you're, you're now into, uh, as you said, tired products at this stage, things we all recognize being the ghetto cake. How, uh, and I, I shared which I've, I finished reading Fintner Tools book, We Don't Know Ourselves. And I, I found in that where TJ Whitaker had presented the uh, plan for economic growth to the government and Sean Lamas seemed to embrace it, that there was an awareness in Ireland that in order for the Irish economy to develop, there was a need to develop
1: the export market.
0: There would have been a certain amount of pressure on you guys and on you to crack that nut.
1: There was, and I guess the way it manifested itself was that there were some colleagues who really worked day and night, but because of the kind of civil service connection, there were some guys who didn't worry about that strategic need, you know. But, but a great, in general, a great crowd of people too. And we're all hired from the private sector. So we were as uncivil service as you could be, you know. So it was, a, it was a great time. So after New York, where to? And back to, back to Dublin for another four years. And back actually into head of this, what had become a department now, the services department. And then after that, 1984, out here to Toronto for what is meant to be a four year contract.
0: One of the things I always put to somebody that has had a life like yours, it's tough on families because it, there's, a, until you get to, as would have been in your case, the four year stint in Toronto that has turned into a longer stint. But until that point, there's a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of challenges in, settling down and forming relationships and building stability.
1: I mean, there's no doubt that it favours uh, single people, I think, possibly even still with Enterprise Ireland, but uh, they're much bigger now and there's less necessity to move. Like in my time, you were contracted to go somewhere if you were chosen.
0: At what stage then did you settle down. And by settle down I'm going to use the Irish terminology there because settling down in Irish Irish terminology didn't mean you actually settled down. Well,
1: I technically Mm -hmm. I had settled down in seventy eight, just before I went to New York. Right. But after most of my African travel and that kind of stuff. Then when I came here, I had no intention of staying. We had our house in Dublin and all that kind of thing. But at the end of four years, I think at that time, my wife was probably more keen than me to stay because she had the young kids and she had got friendly with Canadian mothers of all sorts. Right. When I still spend too much time in the pub with my Irish mates. But anyway, I was convinced because it was, even then, it was a difficult decision between good and gooder, you know. We took a chance, and in fact, I remember thinking I'd probably be going home anyway because I'd go bust, so it might just be a long way of going home. And so (laughs) I I set up my own little consultancy business of helping small companies from Ireland, Northern Ireland, and actually Germany, into Canada and America. I had a associate in America as well. And so that um, so it's kind of simulating the Irish trade board in a private way.
0: Well. I do want to touch on another topic before we wrap up. You've been heavily involved and were instrumental in working with trying to bring the communities together from the north of Ireland.
1: This would be mainly the early it was the early 70s. And through a connection, I was asked, would I do this? The International Fund for Ireland, which was doing some major funding in Ireland, they had a small program called the Wider Horizon Program. Mm-hmm. They helped unemployed young people from disadvantage areas to come and get some work experience and and reconciliation experience. I remember at the beginning saying to them, look, leave me alone. I know the Falls Road. I know Shankill enough to know that I know nothing. The first program they ran out of Belfast to France, the accommodation was burnt down. And Mm -hmm. so their next program, if it didn't work, could have been wiped. And I remember saying to myself, I get this social worker, woman friend of mine to join me and surely we can stop the place being burnt down you know and and we did (laughs) of those guys who come out guys and girls Springboard which was the main organiser in Belfast they did studies where something like 60% of them got jobs and held the job for at least a year another 20 went back to further education which is what they should do And then there was this bundle who disappeared or weren't employed. But that was a fairly good record. Mm -hmm. And it was a joy seeing the Falls and the Shankill guys meeting for the first time Mm -hmm. and realizing fairly quickly that they had a lot in common, Mm -hmm. much more than they had with their Dublin counterparts from Mm -hmm. Tallinn. And to see that kind of reconciliation going on as they went back to Belfast. Now, they went back into their... Little places as well, but they would be able to tell their friends, look, not everybody on the other side is. So that was, um, and as I said to you, nearly a thousand of those over a 20-year period. So that was very, very satisfying. It was this girl who was being sent home by the supervisor for bad behavior. So myself and my staff member, Richard, were driving her up the 427 to the airport. Richard gets a call from her homestay telling him that there's a guy in the wardrobe. And he's saying to your one, are you sure you didn't leave anything behind? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, we do have to wrap up. Is there any piece of music you'd like us to wrap up with? Iberine. Jeneid O'Connor actually sings it also.
0: The book. Where can people get their hands on the book?
1: It, I guess the simple thing is it, it's been self-published, so it's not through any publisher. Just go to Amazon.ca, you put in my name, Bill, J-E-R-M-Y-N, or you put in the title of the book. It's only dead fish swim with the current. I was told by many people not to put that as a a heading, and I said, no, I love it. Why not? But yes, the easiest one is go to Amazon and put, put a search for my name, and it'll come up. Indeed, Bill,
0: it's been a real pleasure chatting, and thank you so much for your time. You too. Oh, father
3: dear, I oft times hear you talk of Erin's Isle, her lofty scenes and valleys green, her mountains rude and wild. They say it is a pretty place where. My dwell. Oh, why did you abandon it? The reason to me, tell. Oh, son, I love my native land with energy and pride till a blind came. died the rent and taxes were so high I could not damn redeem and that's the cruel reason why I left thoseski oh, oh it's way December day The landlord and the sheriff came to drive us all away They said your mother to God rest her soul fell on the snowy ground she fainted in her anguish seeing the desolation round she never Passed away from life to mortal dream she found a quiet brave my boy in dear old Skibbereen. And you were only two years old and feeble was your frame I could not leave friends you bore your father's name I wrapped you in my coat and more in the dead of night unseen I heaved a sigh and said goodbye to dear